Thanks, Joel. You did a great job. Thanks, guys. Great job, as always. Wow, I love watching how he just leaps over those. Gracefully bounds and leaps like a gazelle. Yeah, thank you for the announcements. I just want to add, um, so Easter is obviously the most exciting Sunday of the year because we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord when he conquered the grave and he defeated Satan. And it's an amazing Sunday for that reason above all else. It's also amazing because I've found that many people are willing to come to church on Easter even if they won't go on other days. And so I've been inviting people, friends, uh, family and trying to get people to come to Easter service. I want to encourage you guys, bring your friends, those you've been praying for, people in the dorms. I mean, Ethan will you know, probably have like a train of like 100 people showing up from Markley. Bring all of Markley. Can you guys do that? Just bring the whole dorm. Tell them we're going to church. It's Easter, so wake up. But it's going to be, yes, it's going to be a great day, and I will present Jesus, and I will try to clearly present Christ and give your friends an opportunity to receive the Lord as their Savior. So going to be an amazing Sunday next week, and I'm looking forward to uh, the brunch, breakfast, lunch, whatever you want to call it, the food, and our worship together. So, amen. Well, without any further ado, let's jump in the sermon, can we? Let's do it. You know, today is a very special day in the church's uh, liturgical calendar because it's Palm Sunday. Not only do we remember on this day our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem that kicked off his passion, but it is also the beginning of our remembrance of what we call Holy Week as we are preparing our hearts for Good Friday that is coming up and for Easter Sunday. And I want to begin my message by reading from the Gospel of Luke and looking at the story of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's on the screen. You can follow along with me. Luke 19, verse 28. It says this, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent to of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want to show you an image now, uh, an work of art of Jesus' triumphal entry. And as you're looking at that, I want to share 
some of the theological thoughts about this. There's somewhat of a theological uh, disagreement about what Jesus riding on the donkey into Jerusalem actually met, meant. Some theologians believe that it was to signify that this is your new king because many other influential people and some of the kings of Israel would ride on donkeys. And Elliot talked about that um, since he always preaches on Palm Sunday. He's happy that I'm taking it this time. Others teach that it signified the humility of Jesus Christ entering into Jerusalem because he didn't enter as a conquering king on a war horse, but he entered in humility upon a donkey. Well, what do I think about it? You ready for my answer? I think they're both right. And I think they're both correct because that's exactly what the scriptures say in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And in fact, this passage that we just read from St. Luke's Gospel, he is quoting from the prophet Zechariah. And so look at Zechariah. You can just actually listen to it. You don't need to turn there. Zechariah 9, 9 says this. It's a prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. The king is coming to Jerusalem. And then he says this. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this triumphal entry that we remember on Palm Sunday is the entrance of the humble king of the universe. And to understand how powerful this impact made you have to understand the cultural context of the people there because the Mediterranean people of his day understood triumphal processions. They understood this a lot because they lived under the Roman culture. And a triumphal procession was very common in Rome. And so I want to show you another image here. Now, there was a tradition in Rome that's actually called a triumph what they called it. Because after a great war, a great victory, the generals of Rome would be, would process into the capital of Rome with much fanfare, and, and it would be, there'd be thousands of people there. They would enter in on, with horses and with gold chariots. There was uh, games going, and it was a huge, huge spectacle. And this was a part of the culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the people that were there when Jesus entered in Jerusalem understood this. They knew what they were. The Romans probably had some mini ones in Jerusalem on their own when they conquered. Now, the picture you're looking at is of a, a general called Lucius Aemilius Paulus Macedonicus. And not that you even care. But his name, Macedonicus, is because he conquered Macedon in the Third Macedonian War. And so he had his very own triumph. Now, this concept of the triumph, and again, I want you to compare and contrast how the Roman triumph was with our Lord's entrance on a donkey into Jerusalem. This, this whole festivity and this whole triumph was carried over from Rome to Constantinople, and it has one of my favorite stories from history. And this was a a story of a great general, uh, a Byzantine general who won a, a war, a decisive victory. And so they had an amazing triumph for him in Constantinople. 
And they entered into the city, and there were, here came the, the general and the emperor, and they were on their horses and the gold, and all the people were there, and they were standing in awe. They were just, it was just magical to them, this great general. And they processed all the way to the steps of the Hagia Sophia. And upon the steps of that church was the bishop of that city. And the emperor was to come in, and he was to greet the bishop. And as there was thousands of men and women and children all around cheering and this great victory that we have, and in his pomp and circumstance, he walked up to the steps of the Hagia Sophia. And the bishop crouched down, and he whispered in the ear of the emperor, and nobody could hear, and this is what he said. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And he stood up. And what a powerful rebuke. What a powerful word of truth. That all of this pomp, all this circumstance, all this power and all this glory is going to be fading away. And so today I want to teach a message on Palm Sunday that is slightly different than what we typically do. Because you guys have heard many sermons about the the procession of Christ, and we could preach about it all eternity, and it wouldn't get old. But I wanted to take a different direction, and I want to focus on what does the triumphal entry of Christ, this humble king, what does that mean for you? How does the entrance of Jesus in humility as the humble king change our lives from a life of pride and arrogance to one of humility and peace? And so my sermon this morning will be called Vain Glory. And I want to pray with you this morning, and then we'll jump into this message. Father, we thank you that our Lord is that humble king, and he reigns, and he rules. And I pray that you will come now by your Holy Spirit, that you will use this message in a, a really supernatural way. I pray that you'll take my words and make them something they're not, just more than just a good a good sermon, but something that will breathe life into those that hear. So God, we thank you for this time, and we commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Vainglory. We're going to start with a story of, from my favorite boxer of all time. If you could put a slide up. This is Mike Tyson. Um, at the tender age of 13, uh, Mike Tyson went to work at a gym in the Catskills with a trainer, one of the greatest trainers of all time, Customato. And I remember this. I was alive. I was a teenage, early teens when this was happening. Mike Tyson racked up an impressive 24-3 and amateur record and with his feline speed and raw power, and it had already marked him as a champion, and it brought him to the attention of the pro boxing world. In 1985, that was his debut in the pro circuit. Tyson knocked out Hector Mercedes in the first round, and by the end of the year, he had achieved 15 wins, all by knockout with no losses. No boxers nowadays fight 15 times in a year. That's unheard of. But he, he fought 15 times in one year, knocked out every opponent. It was clear from that point that his sights were set on nothing less than the championship. Less than two years later, on November 22nd, 1986, Tyson went into the ring with Trevor Burbick, for the WBC heavyweight title. After six minutes, the belt and the champion's title were his. At the age of 20, younger than many of you here, he was the youngest heavyweight champion in the history of the world. 
Never a man to be satisfied with anything less than the ultimate he could achieve. Mike Tyson set his sights on the WBA and the IBF belt. He embarked on a mission to unify all heavyweight boxing titles in the hands of one man. And it was to be. March 7th, 1987, Tyson took a 12-round victory over James Bone Crusher Smith, I remember this, to become the WBA heavyweight champion. And less than five months later, he outpointed Tony Tucker to claim the IBF Federation belt. What does this mean? It means in 1987, in August, that Michael Gerard Tyson, the boy from Brooklyn, the orphan, he became the first man in a decade, the first, in fact, since Muhammad Ali, to hold all three titles and rule as the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. What an amazing start for Mike Tyson. However, not long after gaining the championship belt, his life began to spiral out of control. I want to, and I remember watching this happen, and, and any of you that were alive at this time would remember it. Listen to what was said about him just a few years after he became the undisputed champion. This is in 2005. At almost 39, Mike Tyson is anything but at peace. He's confused, humiliated after a decadent lifestyle has left him with broken relationships, shattered finances, and a reputation in ruin. The fighter, the fighter cannot hide his insecurities stacked as high as his legendary knockouts. He frets about his place in the world, where he comes from, where he's headed, and how the life in turbulent times of Michael Gerard Tyson will play out. Quote, I'll never be happy, he said. I believe I'll die alone. I would want it that way. I've been a loner all my life with my secrets and my pain. I'm really lost, but I'm trying to find myself. Quote, I'm really a sad, pathetic case. Mike Tyson. The divorced father of six was blunt, gregarious, funny, vulgar, if you ever listen to him, outrageous, sad, angry, bitter, and at times introspective about the opportunity he squandered over the last two decades. He discussed his drug use, how, quote, the weed got me, his lack of self-esteem, his sexual addiction. Quote, my life has been a waste. I've been a failure, he says. Now, thankfully, I think Mike Tyson has come around and, um, and pray for him. You know, I, I watch his, he's got a podcast called Hot Boxing with Tyson. I, I mean, it just warning, you're going to hear the F word every other word. It's not for children, but I'm telling you, he's really introspective and really thinking about truth. And I pray for him. And he talks about God. And God's, and he had a rough life. We don't know what the pain he went through. And I really believe that, that God is doing something in him. But um, that's neither here nor there, but just wanted to, to, to say pray for him. But I would venture to guess that there's many Americans who, if they were to be as honest as Mike Tyson, would have to agree that a large part of their life has been a waste. Maybe they didn't do what Mike Tyson did, but if they were going to be honest, they'd say, I have lots of money, I've got a home, I've got no financial worries. But when they look back, they would say, my life has been a waste. You see, success in school, all A's at University of Michigan, lots of money, success in business, success in ministry, and yes, even success in boxing will ultimately leave us empty and dissatisfied if it's all we're living for. If that's our highest aim in life is pride and arrogance, we will be empty. 
And my prayer is that you guys will not live a life this way. You will not pursue that which is fading away, but you will pursue what is true and ultimately of eternal value so that you don't find yourself one day as an 80-year-old man, 80-year-old woman, sitting in a rocking chair, looking out your window and saying to yourself, I wasted my life and I can't get it back. It's gone, 80 years, and it was a waste. I don't want that for you. So today I'm going to share a message with you that is not a sermon I prepared in one week. This is a work that the Holy Spirit has been doing in me since I was a young man in ministry. When Tammy and I were in Idaho planting Kaiofa there, God did a really profound work in me in this area, and I want to share this life lesson with you so it's more than a message. It's a life lesson. And as I said before, it's called vain glory. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. If you want to put that up there, let me read this passage to you from, from the Apostle Paul. Vain glory, Philippians 2, 1 through 3. Listen to this. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or, say it with me, vain glory. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So this morning, I want to share with you a sermon from one word. So this is not a one verse sermon. This is a one word sermon. We're going to dig, we're going to drill down real deep into the word vainglory. There are three things I want to do. Number one, I want to define vainglory because when's the last time you ever used the word vainglory? It's been a while, hasn't it? So I want to define what is vainglory. Number two, I want to talk transparently with you about my pursuit of vainglory and what that did to me and where I ended up in my life as I pursued vainglory. And then thirdly, I want to talk with you in closing and present to you what we should be seeking as opposed to vainglory, what our life's true ultimate aim and goal must be. But first, let's define it. What is vainglory? Let's put the slide up. This is a very interesting word in the Greek. Um, it is the word kenothoxa, and what's really interesting is it's the only time that this word is used in the entire scriptures, only one time. And one of the reasons why it's so unique is because it's actually two Greek words that Paul has synthesized and created a new word. It is, it is grounded in the word kenos, which means hollow or emptiness. So it can be thought of as the absence of that which otherwise might be present, hollowness, emptiness. And then the word thoxa, which we talk about in H2O, which means glory. Glory can be uh, a good opinion. The, the Roman general that was coming into Constantinople, they were ascribing glory to him. It's, it's a, a, good, uh, a good esteem, a good opinion that people have of you. This word thoxa also can refer to the brightness or the shimmer of an object. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about there is one thoxa of the sun and another thoxa of the moon. So it can be like the, the shine, the shimmer. So like when you, so like this, when you're going around Ann Arbor and you see a brand new Tesla Model Y, right? And you see it, you can say that has thoxa. That would be a proper usage of the word. 
It has a shine, a shimmer, a brilliance to it. When you see a, a really powerful person that comes into Ann Arbor to give a speech, you could say that person has boxa. They both are correct. And so Paul is taking this word, kenos, empty, hollow, and putting it with glory. So we see that vain glory, kenothoxa, is very different from glory, but you have to look deeper than the surface to understand the difference. Because kenothoxa looks like glory. It shimmers like glory. It smells like glory. It tastes like glory. But if you go beneath the surface, it's hollow. It's empty. It lacks substance. It's not true and lasting. It's an imitation. And I have an illustration because my wife came up with an illustration. She always has the best illustrations of what, um, and Seth Payne is going to come up if he's here. He's going to, I knew he would want to do this. So we're going to illustrate Kenothoxa and what it is by, and I thought this would be perfect this time of the year. It's an Easter bunny. Did anybody get these from their parents on Easter? Oh, we're getting excited. Why don't you just take that out, start opening it up, take the wrapping off while I'm talking. So now as he's doing that, I know it's going to be distracting, so that's okay, but just let him do it and try to listen to me because I got a story. My wife and I both got these as kids, but we had really different uh, chocolate Easter bunnies. See, my mom loves me more than anything. Her mom loves her more than anything. But they have a different approach to buying gifts. My, mom, my mom's approach is get all the gifts quick and as cheap as possible. And I don't mean really good value but cheap. I just mean the price is all that matters. Her mom is like, um, her mom is like I'm going to buy really high quality chocolate Easter bunny. Come on up here with me. Don't be shy. Get up here. There might, let them see the bunny. So there was a difference between the bunnies that my mom gave me, and I'm thankful. Mom, if you can hear me, I'm thankful. Uh, but there was a difference between the bunny that my mom gave me and what Tammy's mom gave her. Are, are you willing to take a bite out of that? Right out of the ear. Let's just bite it. Take a big bite. Uh, oh, what? What's it look? Oh, no. Well, hey. I want to say thank you, and you can keep that. That's a present. All right. So listen. How, hey, is that pretty heavy, or is it light? Is it hollow and filled with air? Pretty much. Okay. So you see, that bunny, on the surface, if, if I didn't say anything about it, you wouldn't know if it was solid. See, it's... But it is. It's, it's not. It's hollow. You had to bite it to see that it, it, it didn't lack anything. So that is a keno bunny. That, that's a vain bunny. It looks like the real thing. Seth could have licked it. He wouldn't have known the difference. He could have smelled it. As long as he didn't pick it up. Because when you pick it up, you know if it's got substance. You know what I'm talking about? Because Tammy's mom would buy the solid ones. Did anybody here ever get a solid Easter bunny? Come on, let me tell you, let's give it out. Every once in a while, something came over my mama. She got me a solid one. And I would, and I, I'm not, I swear, I remember it still in my bedroom. I would start, I would try to take a bite of that ear. I couldn't get through the thing. And all of a sudden, I'd start salivating. And like chocolate saliva would start running down my chin. And I, I felt like a, 
like a dog with a bone. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And I'm telling you, it would be, it would be two days after Easter, I'd managed, I had finally eaten the head. And I'm like, get away from me. I'm done with this thing. I just can't eat anymore. See, that was a real solid chocolate Easter bunny. The ones that I typically got were vain bunnies. They were hollow, though they looked like the real thing. And see, what does this have to do with vainglory? Vanity, comparing ourselves to others, judging our success based upon other people's perception of you, as opposed to your uniqueness and your identity in Christ, is an insidious sin. It hides deep down in the recesses of our hearts where no one can see it. On the outside, we might be, we look like the great Christian. We're wearing Christian t-shirts. We're talking like a Christian. We're going through, through the Christian rituals. We're doing all this. But deep in the recesses of our heart is an enemy, and he's hideous, and he's insidious, and his name is Vanity. And vanity is that secret demon that's motivating the actions of poor, performance-trapped Christian. He's got a whip. He's on the back of the Christian. He's saying, go, go, climb the mountain, climb the mountain, climb the mountain. And the mountain is called vainglory. And we must not do it, Paul says. Don't pursue vainglory. Don't chase after vainglory. Unfortunately, most people do. Let me show you the next slide. I see this at the University of Michigan. I see it in the corporate world. Listen, students, there's a, there's a pressure at the University of Michigan. Be better than others. Be the best. Get all A's. Outperform. Go beyond your classmates. And if you allow that to cultivate and then you go into the corporate world, you're going to bring it there. And I'm telling you, there's men my age, they're 52 years old. They did that. They went into the corporate world. They climbed up the corporate ladder. They became a vice president. They became a president. They got to the pinnacle, and they sat down one day. You know what they said? This is it? This is it? This is, this is what I spent my whole life about? This is, this is, I dedicated 30 years for this. I'm still miserable. I'm still empty. It's still hollow. And so it's not just in the corporate world. It can happen in the church. We're praying that the pastor will single us out on a Sunday. We're leading in the worship band. And I'm not trying to say the worship band is doing this. I'm not picking on you guys for sure. Um, but it happens in churches. We want to be seen. Um, we want to preach a good sermon so that people think we're great preachers. Uh, pastors want to relentlessly build a ministry that they claim is to reach people for Christ, but deep down, they're trying to find the approval and the praise of men. That's what they're trying to do deep down. It's vain glory. That's not what we are to pursue. Now, I've got a video clip from the greatest movie of all time, uh, besides The Godfather. Again, this is not a movie for children, nor is The Godfather. And there's parts that I skip. And if you want to know which ones, talk to me. I'm not endorsing it right now publicly. I'm just saying they're the two greatest movies of all time, and they both happen to originate from Italy. Coincidence? I think not. So this is, oh, hold on. Before you play it, um, this is from The Gladiator, and uh, it's an amazing movie. It's, it definitely is my number two of all time. And this is a scene where I got to set this up for you, okay, because you got to understand the point. So... Rome has an army 
in Germania, and they're, they're trying to expand their kingdom. They're fighting the barbarians. This is crazy war scene where you've got the Romans. They look like the elves in Lord of the Rings, okay? They've got their swords, their hats. They're very civilized. They're orderly. And then they're taking on these crazy barbarians. We're like, with the axe. I can't act like a barbarian. I'm five foot seven. Okay, guys that look like Matt. You know what I mean? They're, um, and, and they're just like these crazy big barbarians. And they have this terrible victory, this victory, but it's terrible loss of life. And then <clears throat> the emperor is actually there. Some of you know this scene I'm talking about, the opening scene. Okay. The emperor is actually there, and his son is there named Commodus. And then there's the general Maximus. Commodus is a lazy, no good, vain man. And Commodus wants praise. He wants all the men to honor him. Oh, honor me. But he doesn't do squat. He can't kill a flea. But then Maximus is the real warrior. He's a great fighter. And he wins the battle. And the emperor comes up to Maximus. And they have a conversation. And it's, and it's interesting. It's like a, a hush conversation. Like the one I opened with. With the, with the bishop of Constantinople and, and the emperor. This is just emperor to general. And he has a really profound conversation with Maximus, asking Maximus how he could reward him. I want you to listen to this really carefully as we play it. So let me put, bring the lights down. Should I bring the lights down? A little movie town. Okay, um, Dakota, um, get the popcorn. Everybody get ready. And uh, let's put, make sure the volume is really loud when we do this. Your valor yet again, Maximus. Let us hope for the last time. There's no one left to fight, sir. There is always someone left to fight. How can I reward Rome's greatest general? Let me go home. Home. All right, that's good. Thank you. Let's see if I can find the lights here. Ooh, there we go. There we go. There it is. And there was light. Okay, I love that. I mean, this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie for numerous reasons, but it illustrates a point I'm trying to make here. If you saw the scene beforehand, the emperor's no good, you know, son that I talked about, Commodus, wanted to be honored in front of the men. He wanted the emperor to parade him in front of everybody so they could clap for him. He wanted vain glory. When the emperor looked at the man that actually won the battle and he asked him, how can I reward Rome's greatest general? Remember, this is the emperor of Rome. He could have asked for anything. All the money, all the women, all the power, all the land, anything. This is, this is the emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And how did he respond? Let me go home. And then there's this beautiful scene. He goes, ah, home. Tell me about your home. And he says, oh, the herbs, I can smell the herbs and, and my, uh, the olive trees and my beautiful wife and my son. And that's what he wanted. You see, Commodus wanted to be honored in the sight of men. Maximus didn't seek that at all. All he did was he fought for the glory of Rome. 
He fought for a glory that was higher than himself. He fought for Rome's glory and the glory of the emperor. He did not fight for his own glory. Commodus sought vain glory. Now, where is Rome? It's been reduced to broken pillars. I've been there. Every human empire will end, no matter how glorious, no matter how powerful it is. We seek something higher than the glory of a man-made kingdom. We seek the glory of the eternal king. We don't seek vainglory. We seek his glory and his power, a kingdom that will never end. Now, the second thing I want to do this morning is share transparently with you, as I said, about my pursuit of vainglory and, um, and just share what the Lord did in me. So my wife and I were in Idaho. We had uh, planted uh, Chi Alpha Ministry at Boise State University. Uh, we were very young. Uh, new parents. We had Emma, and maybe we had you by then. I don't remember, Johnny. But we had one or two kids at this point. And um, we were working relentlessly. We were working hard as new parents and starting a ministry where there was none and trying to lead a team. And it was good. And God did amazing things in us. And we had some people came to Jesus. We had found some believers. And we had a Friday night worship gathering every week. And um, I was feeling a lot of pressure at this point in time, and I didn't know the source of it. But I was feeling under a lot of pressure and uh, internally. Um, <clears throat> and something happened on this fateful Friday that turned out to actually be good. But when it happened, I was, I was really upset by it. So uh, Tawana called me. Tawana was a great young lady and a student that Tammy and I ministered to. And, I mean, we knew her. She was in our home. She's amazing. Uh, we cared about her, and she was a great worship leader. But she called me, and she said, I, ca I can't be there tonight. I can't leave worship. And uh, she went on to explain she was dealing with some depression and just not feeling good, and there was, like, a lot of mental anxiety and stress. And I, I said the really nice pastoral thing. Oh, I, I understand. I understand. Okay. Well, I'll pray for you. But inside, I didn't think that. Inside, I was like, oh, gosh. How is the show going to go on? The show must go on. How are we going to have a great worship experience? How are we going to do this? And it produced, it, it, it produced stress in me that was not proportional to what had just happened. And so I did something for the first time. I, I quit. I quit ministry. Um, probably lasted about two minutes. Um, probably wasn't the last time either. But I was like, I quit. I can't take it. And I was filled with sorrow, but but see, because I try to look beneath the surface and not just experience a feeling, but try to ask myself why, as I felt sorrow, I realized it was not a godly sorrow because the sorrow I should have felt was sorrow for Tawana. That's what I should have felt, is sorrow for her. This is an opportunity to bless Tawana and to help her. But my sorrow was, I don't know how we're going to run this ministry. And, and there was an underlying pressure that I had of not feeling successful. And so then I began to have these thoughts, like, how am I going to be successful as a minister? How am I going to have this, this great ministry? How are people going to know me? How will I make a name for myself? And I began to see that there was selfish ambition in me. Let me show you this, the seventh slide, if you can put it up. Paul talks about this. Philippians 1.17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, 
rather than pure motives. 221, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, I, I do want to say this. I, I was a Christian, and I did love the Lord. And, and I did want people to know Jesus. It wasn't like I was this complete hypocrite. But it was more like my heart and my soul was a field of wheat and chaff. And there was wheat and there was chaff. There was good motives and there was bad. There was godly desires and there was vain glory mixed in. Does anybody understand what I mean? It's not binary. It wasn't one, you're like Jesus, and zero, you're Satan. I mean, it was, I'm in between, I'm being sanctified, but there's some old Nino who was very arrogant and I was very prideful as a young man. And, that, and I thought, at salvation, it's gone, right? <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, you're going to need a time of sanctification of the Holy Spirit to work in you and uproot these sinful behaviors and thoughts and desires from your youth. And that's what God was doing in me. Now, I'll never forget the conversation I had with Tammy. If you ever want direction from the Lord, don't sit on a couch and tell Tammy your problems because you're going to get smacked with prophetic words. Because I started complaining to Tammy and about this and that and how's our ministry going to go on and I'm feeling so stressed and Tawana can't do it and blah, blah. And then Tammy is just, she's more of the calm one. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Um, I used to be way more intense than I am now. So you can only imagine. Is that true? I'm too tired now to be intense. But, but when I was 20-something, oh, man. And so Tammy, just, you just calmly listened to me. And she told me something that was so prophetic. Um, she said, when, as you were sharing... I had a picture in my mind of you. <clears throat> and she said you had like um, glue sticks and packaging tape and there was like a, a box fort in front of you. And you were running around and, and, it, and like the wall, one wall would fall down and you try to put the box back up and you would tape it and you're just tiring yourself out trying to keep this box fort together. And then every time you try to get it up and you go, all right, I just, Father in heaven goes, and he blows it down. Did I startle you? I did. Yeah. And uh, she said, yeah, and, and God is just blowing it apart. And I realized it was a prophetic word for me. I was trying to build something that would reflect good on me in addition to bring glory to Christ. We were trying to build a ministry that would bring glory to Christ, and I was doing that. But there was also vain glory and selfish ambition. And so the Lord began to redefine success in my life. And I'm not the only one that needs this, and I hope this will begin to set you free. I had a conversation with uh, the late, great Dick Schroeder. Some of you guys know him, and Tammy goes, oh, because he passed away. He's with the Lord now. But when Tammy and I went to Idaho, he was kind of like the spiritual leader for the whole Big Sky region. And um, and you guys all know we have our SALT conference. You guys love that. Well, we had the SALT conference in beautiful Butte, Montana, back in the day, home of the largest man-made orifice known on the face of the earth. There's a big copper mine. They had a big copper mine that they no longer mine copper, and it filled with water, and it's all poisonous water now in the center of Butte, Montana. They called it Butt, Montana. And so we go to the Best Western in beautiful Butte, Montana. No joke. Largest man-made orifice in the world. And... Um, and you know, so, and you have Chi Alphas from the whole, the whole Big Sky region coming together. And salt for me was not fun. Okay, can I just be honest with you? Here's why it was not fun. 
because I was measuring my worth based on how many students I brought. And I would compare myself to other ministries. How many are they bringing? How many am I bringing? And it was just terrible. And so I, pull, I pulled aside the Reverend Dick Schroeder because he's the most spiritual man I knew. And I told him about my pressure, and I said, Dick, do you, do you struggle with that? Like when you come here, because you seem so at peace, you're always smiling. Oh, yeah, the Lord is doing a great work. And, you know, I'm like, aren't you stressed? And if you knew Dick Schroeder, you'd laugh with me. But So he, he looked at me, and he said, um, Nino, I, no, I, I don't struggle with that. Um, he said, for me, when, the only thing that matters is this. When I go to bed at night, I put my head on the pillow. If I can say, I've done what the Father asked me to do today, I'm as successful as any other man on earth. That's it. That's success, he said, for me. Oh, man, I said, you're a liar. Um, I didn't say that. You would not say that to Dick Schroeder. Um, but it really began to set me free, and I realized that I was under this pressure trap, seeking the recognition and seeking vain glory, even as a campus minister. And, and the Lord has began to, begun to change my definition. We put that slide up. So this is what I now see as success. True success is simply walking in obedience to Father. Walking in obedience to the Father. Success is not having the highest GPA. Success is not building the biggest business. Ultimate success is not having the largest ministry. Success is not looking good in the eyes of others. Success is doing what Father asks you to do. And that's it. Because only you can do what the Father asks you to do. Nobody else can do that for you. And you don't have to do what he asked me to do. For too long, I, I judged my success in my ministry to, you know, Pastor Bob, Evangelist Joe Smo, blah, blah, blah. But see, I've come to realize that I'm unique. I may, I may not be the greatest preacher in the world. I don't care. No one can preach like me. You know that's true. And that doesn't mean they're not better than me, but no one can preach like me. No one can do what you can do. You're unique. God created you to do what only you can do. And um, you are a unique tool in the hand of the Father, and he wants you to find success in him. And you know, salt was awesome this year, wasn't it? It's was amazing. We had a good-sized group. That doesn't make me successful. Do I want to have more people there next year? Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I'd love to have 60 people, 70, 80, 100, 1,000 from U of M but not so I look good, so that they know Jesus. Because the more people that, that encounter Christ, the more people are coming into the kingdom, the more disciple makers we have. That's the motivation. It's, I don't need to look good anymore. I care about what one person thinks, and his name is Jesus. Amen. I'm going to have the band come forward, and um, we're going to go into a time of prayer. And I, I, I do want to share one more scripture about vainglory, but as the band is coming, I want to um, put up on the screen 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I have a few more things to share in, in closing with you. So I, we talked about what vainglory is. I talked about my pursuit. And now I want to close by sharing what I think your life should be about, what you should pursue with the rest of your life. 
And we find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Paul admonishes us here to seek the eternal weight of glory, not the hollow, empty, cheap substitute. Not the fake glory, the real glory, the weighty, substantial. Have you ever noticed that when you are seeking vainglory or people around you are seeking vainglory, they're obsessed with what can be seen? Those that seek vainglory are obsessed with what is seen, but what is seen is temporary. Those that seek eternal glory, they're obsessed with what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal. It will not pass away. I love how Paul says it is, uh, it outweighs them all. The eternal glory of God outweighs them all, right? That's the real glory. Like that Easter bunny, I, that's why I asked you, Seth, how, how much does, how does it feel? And it's light. It doesn't have substance. That's vain glory, but that real glory is weighty. And the same is true with our lives. And so let's live lives that are weighty, amen? Substance, depth spiritual depth, spiritual weight to be those men and women that will be a light for Christ at U of M. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray together. If we could stand, we're gonna, the band's going to lead us. As you know, during Lent, we've been having some amazing times of prayer. It's been a joy to pray at the altars with you guys. I've, I've really seen the Lord ministering to so many people. It's been incredible. We're going to do it again. And so if you want to respond to the message or you just want to pray, you don't have to respond to the message. Just come on up. The altar is open. You can come and pray. They're going to lead us in worship. God bless you guys. Let's, let's seek the Lord together.